My name is Keith. I'm the care and counseling pastor here, and I get to bring you the word this morning. So appreciate that opportunity. Let's start out by uh, uh, remembering that in Minersville, Pennsylvania, the police department received a letter with $5 in it. The return address said, Feeling Guilty, Wayward Road, Any Town, California. Chief Combs read the letter to the local news reporter as it said this, Dear PD, I've been carrying around this ticket for 40 plus years. I intended to pay it earlier. Forgive me for not revealing all of my info to you with respect, and then he signed it, Dave. This 1974 parking ticket was $2. He added $3 to cover the interest over those years. Uh, that was gracious of him. Today, that ticket would have been well over $20. And the interesting thing was, in 1974, all they knew that was that he had an Ohio license plate, but back then they couldn't uh, check on other states and their information. So here's a man who wrote a letter to the police, paid his parking ticket, late of course. He had great guilt and regret and was trying to clear his conscience. Clear his conscience. How many of us here today have ever felt regret? Anybody? Okay. If you haven't, you're probably not breathing. All right. So we've all felt regret. And we're going to, you know, we're going to look at that this morning. Have you ever said maybe some harsh words? Or maybe you've burned some of those relationship bridges, or perhaps not spoken up when you should have, or maybe you missed an opportunity that you wished you would have taken, or maybe you didn't spend more time with a friend or a relative and they passed on. Perhaps uh, we regret not saying I love you more to someone. Uh, maybe we regret borrowing some money that we borrowed from someone. Or perhaps we just re realize that we have wasted a lot of time. You see, we all deal with regrets. Well, we're going to continue our series in Mark here, looking at the lion roaring. And in this situation, we have a man who is reminded of a past person and time that he desperately regretted. And rightly so, because he had murdered a man. So he had regret because of that. The summary of all that we're going to look at this morning is this. Our conclusion about who Jesus is affects us and how we deal with the past, and how we live our life in the present, and what we look forward to in the future. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, if you want to take one of the Bibles out in front of you. Uh, the Bible's under the seats there, it's page 841, for those who want to do that. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. If you would, out of reverence for God's word, if you're able and willing, would you please stand as we read that together. Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous works are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod held a grudge, excuse me, Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. 
But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, what, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went out, beheaded him in prison, and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. These are God's words. May they accomplish his purposes. Please be seated. We're going to look at three things from this passage this morning. We're going to look at the reality of who Jesus is, the regret that comes because of who Jesus is, and then the remedy because of who Jesus is. First of all, let's look at the reality of who Jesus is here. And, and we see that uh, King Herod, look in verses 14 and 15. King Herod heard of it because of Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's the prophet like one of the prophets of old. So King Herod and these other guys were having a discussion about who is this Jesus guy that they had heard of. And some said, well, it's John the Baptist. He's raised from the dead. Some said it must be Elijah because he was a very powerful prophet of God who lived years ago. And then others thought, well, it's just one of the prophets because they're speaking good things in the name of God. Today, that same question is a question we need to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, the world has several different answers for that question. Some people in the world say he's a good teacher, or maybe like some of these guys were thinking back in the first century, he was a prophet. Other people think that Jesus was a Jewish rogue uh, leader or scholar. Others think that Jesus is just a curse word or excuse for a vacation holiday. Some people think that Jesus is just simply a historical figure. And then there are others who believe that Jesus is the Savior who saves us from our sin, and he's the one who is the Son of God. So we have all these different options about who Jesus is that are being propagated all over this world today. So here's a, a, a little more personal question, and who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? We're going to be looking at that uh, for just a few minutes this morning. C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell popularized the idea that Jesus could be one of three uh, possible persons. Either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And those are the only three possibilities that we have uh, according to history and all the documentation we have. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And how do we know which one he is? Well, it's interesting when you look at um, what happened when Jesus was here on this earth. <laughs> he was talking to the Pharisees and he asked them, okay, for which of my good deeds are you going to stone me now? Because they were going to kill him. And in John 10, 33, here's what they said. The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, 
make yourself to be God. So they understood that he was saying that he was one with God the Father. And he just, as they saw him as just a man, was saying that he was also God. So is he a a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? You know, isn't it interesting that the birth of this man that we're talking about, Jesus, actually is the, the reason why we have the calendar we have today? That's why this is the year 2022, because of the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, he's more than just a historical figure. Even though we have great evidence to show that he was a real man who lived on this earth, who died, who walked, and who rose again over in the Middle East. We know that he was a real person. Well, let's consider this possibility that he was a liar. You know, one of the interesting things about most liars, how many of you have ever known a liar? Anybody here? Yeah. Liars are what we would call hypocrites, right? They say one thing and do another. Jesus was not like that. Jesus was not a hypocrite. In fact, the skeptic John Mill said this. He said, Jesus was a perfect example in all that he taught. His words and his actions always matched. Now, that's a skeptic, someone who doesn't really believe in Jesus as as being more than just a, a man. He understood that Jesus was not a liar. Jesus did not say something that he wasn't consistently living out. And the other thing that's interesting about Jesus, too, to show that he's not a liar is he wasn't like, how many of you have ever heard somebody who just wants power and they will lie to say or do anything and, and get that power? You ever seen that and noticed that? Uh, if you ever watch the news about politicians, you see that happening a lot, right? Yeah. And those people are all about getting their own power so that they can exercise that power and that authority over other people. But Jesus never did that. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. You see, Jesus didn't work to just gain power over others. He worked to accomplish God's purposes. So he was not a liar because his life was so consistent with what he said and what he did. Well, maybe Jesus was just a a plain old uh, crazy guy, a lunatic. Was he a lunatic? Well, it's interesting. Here's Peter we have a, a quote from him. A measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between who you think you are and what you really are. That's true, isn't it? But interesting, the savviness, the canniness, the human wisdom, the attractiveness of Jesus emerged from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with unavoidable force to any but the most hardened and prejudiced reader. In other words, you cannot read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with an open mind and heart and see Jesus as a crazy person. You just can't see that. Because Jesus was not self-deceived, he was not delusional. So he wasn't a liar, and he wasn't a lunatic, so what's that leave us then? It leaves us, of course, the fact that he's the Lord. He is an example who is impeccable. He's the only perfect person who ever lived. Never committed a sin, never did anything wrong. His actions always validate his words. His resurrection proves his deity. And the apostles who followed him, who knew him, who lived with him, believed that so much that they even gave their lives believing that he lived, he died, and he rose again, and they saw him risen. You see, the Bible attests to him as being the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the fact that he is the one who has defeated death and the grave. So Jesus is not a liar. He's not a lunatic, but he is the Lord. 
the one who should be in charge of our lives, the one who leads and guides us. And uh, everyone needs to answer that question then, who is Jesus? Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. You must make your choice. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. So this idea that Jesus was just a great man who was a, a good teacher is not even an option according to what Jesus said. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And we believe, of course, that's why we're gathered here this morning, that he is the Lord. So who is Jesus? That's the central question of our lives, really, when you think about it. Who is Jesus? And, and here's a, another question. Who is Jesus to you? To you. And here's an even more difficult question. What difference does our belief in Jesus make in our lives? What difference does what we believe in Jesus really make in our lives? You know, I was thinking about this and I thought, the, the Holy Spirit is here with us this morning, so God is in our presence. Jesus is here through the Holy Spirit who dwells in all of us who are Christians. But what if Jesus physically came and he appeared and he was here on stage right now this morning? And we ask him, will you answer each of the, for each of us this question, what difference does our belief in you really make in our life? If he went around and walked in front of each of us and looked directly at us, what would he say? about does Jesus really make a difference in our everyday life? To some of us, I believe, he'd look at us and say, yes. To others, he'd look at us and say, once in a while. And sadly, to some of us here, he perhaps would look at us and say, no. No. So you see, it's important for us to answer that question who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the reality is, he is the Son of God who died for us and rose again. Well, that's the first thing that we see out of our main text here. But let's, uh, let's go on and look at, uh, it's interesting because this man, Herod, King Herod, uh, has regret because of who Jesus is. Regret because of who Jesus is. Verse 16 there says, When Herod heard of it, he said, Well, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. In fact, he said this very matter-of-factly. That's who he really believed that Jesus was John raised back to life. And when you look at this, why, why would he think that? Because he has this deep regret about what he did to John the Baptist. And he thinks, John has come back to haunt me? This Herod has a guilty conscience here and he feels the shame because of him killing John. Isn't it interesting that sin leads us to regret and then hopefully leads us to repentance? That's the way God created us. Well, so that when we do something wrong, we do just naturally feel inside of us that, that that was wrong. That was something I shouldn't have done or said or thought. Regret is a natural part. And regret is naturally a result of when we encounter Jesus. Because he shows us his perfection and we see how we don't meet up to that perfection and how we fail in God's eyes before him. 
Well, in this story, it's, it's very interesting. We have some various characters who are involved here. We're going to go over those characters and what happened. And uh, interesting because some of these characters actually are like people today that we may know, or perhaps even some of us may resemble some of these characters. Let's look at who these characters were. First of all, you have uh, uh, the second one down there, see Herod Antipas. That's who we're talking about today. Uh, This passage calls him King Herod. Actually, his dad was Herod the Great, and he officially was a king because he ruled over all that area there in the Middle East where Jesus lived and taught and and, and was was roaming around teaching there. And and Herod was the Great was Herod Antipas' dad. Well, when Herod the Great died, Herod Antipas and three of his brothers split up the kingdom into four different areas. So even though the people considered Herod to be the king, he officially was not at this point. He was just called a tetrarch because he, he ruled over one-fourth of the kingdom. So in this family tree, you notice several of these guys are named Herod. That was their family name. It's like the Jones or the Smith family. All right? He was the Her- a part of the Herod family. And these Herods were appointed by Rome to be the rulers in this area of the world. Now, first you have King Herod. Now, Herod the Great there, he's the one who actually killed the infants in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And, of course, we know Jesus, Mary, and Joseph escaped during the night so that he was not killed with the other babies that were killed there in Bethlehem. And that's what Herod the Great ordered. Well, then when he died, Herod Antipas, the one we're looking at this morning, who killed John the Baptist... He's the one who is reigning at this time, and he actually did get to meet Jesus later on. We'll talk about that a little while later. And then you see Herod Agrippa I was Herod Antipas' nephew, and he was the one who, uh, who actually uh, killed James, the apostle, and arrested Peter. So have you noticed something about this, this family and what they're good at? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're pretty good killers, aren't they? In fact, Herod the Great was so good at it, he was so paranoid, he actually killed two of his sons because he thought they were plotting against him. And then Herod Agrippa II was the one that Paul gave his defense in, in Acts 25 and 26. But that's just a quick overview of the Herod family and who this Herod is a little bit. But let's look a little more closely at who Herod and the other characters in this passage uh, really are. First of all, you have... Uh, Herod Antipas uh, that we're talking about, and let's call him the fence-sitter. He's the fence-sitter, okay? Uh, Because he was captivated by the world, but he was also enticed by those things that were holy. In verse 20 of our main text there, if you look at that verse there, we see see what it says there. Mark writes this, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, but he heard him gladly. You see, Herod was sitting on the fence. He had one leg in the world and one leg who, you know, on the other side trying to listen to John. And he was very perplexed, but he loved listening to John. But the interesting thing was, he was this fence sitter who heard John over and over, but there was no change in his life. He was non-committal until he was forced. It was interesting because this man who was a fence-sitter was fearful. That's why he kept John safe from his wife, who wanted him dead. And later on, he was so fearful of men that the wickedness of his heart would show up. Well, the second person we see here is a lady by the name of Herodias. Herodias. And uh, Herodias was a very corrupt woman. She was actually the villain in this story. She, she's the really, really bad person. 
Uh, she's a, a sleazy lady who is a lousy parent. And we would just call her wicked. Okay? While Herod is the fence-sitter, she's just wicked. She, that, that's the best way for us to describe her. And then we have her daughter, who we aren't given the name in this text, but Josephus, the historian, gives us her name. Her name was Salome. And Salome, uh, we would call her the clueless cultural conformer. Okay? She's a clueless cultural conformer. In fact, at this time, she is probably a teenager. If she lived today, she'd be doing all kinds of TikTok videos, and she'd be trying anything that there was out there uh, to, to try. That's the kind of, of teenager that, that she was. Of course, remember, she has a totally wicked mom who's raising her. And then we have, of course, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. He's a man of God. He's very courageous. He's righteous and holy. He's completely sold out to God. And he is the one who's preparing the way for Jesus to come. That's why they think that, you know, later on that, uh, that he is basically, or that Jesus is basically him resurrected. Now let's look at the family chart one more time because I want you to look at this family from a different perspective. This family is what I call sin on steroids, okay? If you look at this family tree, now many of us look at our family trees and we're like, well, we've got a few of those characters in our tree too. But look at this Herod family. I mean, they are just, and this is not a complete layout. But Herod the Great had all kinds of children. He had uh, at least five wives. Uh, the one place I read said he had more like 10. And uh, he had five children. And these five children, like I said, he killed some of them. But uh, these brothers, uh, like uh, Herod Philip I was married to Herodias. Well, when uh, Herod Antipas went to visit, evidently Herodias said, hey, I'd rather have this brother than that brother. Now, they're half-brothers. But uh, so, so Herod the Tetrarch uh, divorced her, and she ended up marrying. Her former brother-in-law is now her husband. And so she did that. That's the kind of person that she is. And, and, and as we look at this whole situation, it's just uh, amazingly how, how wicked this family is. So uh, we're going to move on from that, though, and not spend a whole lot of time on that because uh, they're sin on steroids in this family, okay? Take, take my word for it. Uh, if you want to study history, you can. Verses uh, 17 through 20, 17 through 20, in our main text there, we see what's going on here. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him to prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So what's going on here? Where Herod goes and arrests John because his wife says, you've got to talk, stop this guy from talking badly about us. And then evidently, John even told it right to their face. It is not right for you to have your brother's wife. Let's look at Leviticus 20, 21, which is what John is talking about. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. Now this is if the brother is still alive. If he's dead, they had a different story uh, about that. But if your brother's still alive, it's impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. In other words, this is not just a sin. This is a sin with a curse associated with it from God's perspective. So it was wrong for him to take his brother's wife, who, oh, by the way, happened to also be his niece. 
and to marry her. It was wrong for that to be done. And of course, how did Herodias feel about this? Well, she held a grudge. She's just waiting for the right time for, for, for her opportunity to get even with him and find out what happens. And then let's look in verse, starting verse 21 through 23. But it says an opportunity came. An opportunity came for what? For Herodias to get her revenge on John. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give it up to half of my kingdom. Up to half of my kingdom. So here's the opportunity she's been waiting for. It's a birthday party. Now, this is not a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, okay? This is a birthday party for adult men who are military, government, and, and community leaders that he invites. There's food there, there's lots of drinking there, and there's always uh, uh, this tantalizing entertainment that's going to be there. The interesting thing, though, is look at what happens to this, this daughter of the king, the stepdaughter of the king, who normally she would be above this kind of entertainment, but no, not Salome. Salome comes in and does this uh, degrading uh, dance for him. She's somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. And she's the stepdaughter and great niece of this man for whom she dances. And what does the Bible say? It says, she pleased Herod. And his guests. Now, I'm guessing from the context here that the, he and the, and the other guys are not saying, wow, isn't she a graceful ballet dancer? Okay, that's not what's going on here. She's doing probably a, a, a very vulgar and, and degrading kind of dance. But it pleased them. So he makes, makes this boastful and wrecked, reckless promise of giving up to half of his kingdom. Up to half of his kingdom. And so, of course, this teenager, you know, she gets this great news. All right, my stepdad says, I can have half the kingdom. What am I going to ask for? So she goes to get some advice from her mom, from her mom. She goes to find out, verse 24 and 25. She went out, she said to her mother, what should I ask? For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. On a platter. Now, well, isn't this a fun family? This is really sad, isn't it? These people are just plain wicked. She goes to ask her mom, Mom, he promised me up to half his, his kingdom. What do I ask for now? The normal teenager at that time probably would have said, I can go get a whole new wardrobe. Or I can ask for a new horse or a new chariot. I can get something that I will really like and enjoy. But she goes and asks her mom, and her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Now this girl is, she's an obedient daughter because we don't see any, any kind of argument here or hesitation. She says, oh, okay, I'll go ask for John the Baptist's head. So she goes right back in, the way all this is worded here in our text, she goes right back in and says, I want you immediately to get me the head of John the Baptist." On the platter. On the platter. Verses 26 through 28 now. The king was exceedingly sorrow, or sorry, 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought the head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So what's going on here now? What's happening? Well, King Herod is exceedingly sorry. Interesting that that is the exact same word that they use about how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. He felt sorry. Why? Because now he had to choose between his reputation and keeping his word. Between what other people thought of him and what he was going to do. You see, a good step-parent at this point would have said, now, 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 listen, I, I know that your mom wants John's head, but I really want to give you something that you want. What is it you would like? That's what a good step-parent would do. But he's too afraid of the people who are watching and doesn't realize he could have kept his oath, given her what she wanted at the same time. So he tells the executioner, go kill this man. So the executioner cuts off John's head, puts it on a platter, brings it in, hands it to the teenager, Salome, and Salome takes it over and gives it to her mom, Herodias. Gives it away. Now, sin in the past has come to haunt Herod at this point because he remembers all this. When he hears about Jesus, he says, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead to just haunt me and give me difficulties. That's why he had regrets. But see, he doesn't realize that there is a remedy here and that the remedy is because of who Jesus is as well. Look in verse 29 of our main text. Verse 29. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So John's disciples come and they get his body because Herodias has the head. They come and get his body and give him a proper burial. Now, this is a very sad ending to the story, isn't it? But that's not the end of the story, thankfully. It's not the end. It's not the end because Jesus is always in this picture. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, 2 Corinthians 7.10, we see these words that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You ever been to the funeral of somebody who was just wicked and nasty? The very first funeral I was ever asked to perform was for the town drunk who happened to be the ex-husband of one of the ladies in our church. There wasn't much hope that I could preach about him and his life. But his ex-wife asked me, would you please present the gospel to these people so that the kids don't follow his example? The remedy is Jesus. Herod later meets Jesus for real. It's interesting because it's when Pilate, Jesus before Pilate, Pilate finds out he's from Galilee, says, oh, he needs to talk to Herod Antipas then. So Herod Antipas comes in, questions him. He's waiting for this big sign from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't give him a sign. In fact, he doesn't even answer him. And so what does Herod Antipas do here, the same guy who, who killed John? What does he do? He and his soldiers mock Jesus and abuse him. So we see that he hasn't understood fully what's going on here. But the remedy for us, we understand. 
we have a, a greater picture here than just what Herod had. Look at what John said. Later on, he says, my children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and that's every one of us in this room, we do sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have somebody who speaks on our defense, on our behalf. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is the one who satisfies the wrath of God because of sin, and he paid the penalty for us and took our place on the cross. Jesus is the one who helps us. Jesus is the remedy for our sin. God forgives us whatever we've done. Anybody here ever actually met a murderer? Well, look around this room. According to Scripture, <laughs> this room is full of murderers. Because see, any of us who have hated a brother or a sister are murderers, according to what John said. doesn't matter what we've done. God at this point, even if Herod Antipas had repented, Jesus would have forgiven him. But he didn't repent. He forfeited his integrity, he lost his soul, and he murdered an innocent man. Interesting, history tells us that Herod and Herodias were later, uh, he wanted to be declared officially a king. And Caesar said, nope, not going to do that. In fact, he was so wicked, he and Herodias were banished to Gaul, which was France, by, of, of all people, the emperor Caligula. If you know anything about history, Caligula's really bad, and if he sends you off to be exiled, you're, you're just terrible, beyond, uh, beyond explanation, really. Salome ends up marrying one of her uncles, and we never hear from her. She's done. But John, John maintained his integrity. He denounced sin by calling for repentance, but yet he was saved. He was saved. He lost his life, but he was saved. Now, how many of you know somebody named Herod? Okay, none of us. But how many of us know somebody named John? Yeah. See, the name John lives on. Because in this case, it's somebody who was a righteous and holy person who actually gave up his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. His faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what any man and woman here can experience too. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What does God do with offense sitters? According to, to Revelation, uh, if they're lukewarm, he spits them out because Jesus said you're either for me or against me. Don't try to pretend that you're partially for me and you're partially, you know, and sometimes you're against me. You're one or the other. What about the clueless conformers that we know today? Well, the natural man is naturally against God and against what is right because we naturally are just sinners by nature. You don't have to give children a session on, hey, we're going to teach you today how to sin, okay? There are no parents here who taught their kids how to sin when they were younger because they didn't know how to do it already. It just comes naturally. We're all clueless conformers unless we come to know Jesus. And then what about just those wicked people? And all of us have encountered some of those. 
Well, we know the ultimate destiny of those wicked people was the same as that of Satan. And ultimate destination is the lake of fire that God has prepared. You see, the good news is this morning, though, there's the reality of who Jesus is. There's the regret that we all feel because of our sin once we realize who Jesus is. But then there's also the remedy that Jesus gives to us. That's the good news this morning. That Jesus makes all things right with God and with other people. Doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter what the things in the past have caused other people pain or, or ourselves pain. Jesus is the remedy for that. He corrects that. You know, we all make, we all have choices and each of those choices have consequences and they're either good or bad. To not choose Jesus is actually to reject Jesus. It is a choice. To say, well, maybe later on, that's a choice to wait and and really to reject who Jesus is. So how do we overcome these regrets? How do we overcome those regrets? Let's look in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul is talking. Uh, We're trying to take what we've heard this morning from this, this passage and actually apply it to us. How does it fit in with our lives? Paul said this. Now, this is right after Paul said, listen, I want you to know I was a a person with prestige. I was an educated person who was well-respected. I I had all this different uh, ability that I was using for God in the wrong way. And here's what Paul says right after he boasts about the things of his past. He says, but whatever gain I had in Philippians 3, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Another word for that could be dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him having a righteousness, uh, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on later on and says, how do I do this? I forget what lies behind and I press on toward what lies ahead. I press on. This morning all of us here have regrets. There are things that we have done or said or thought that we wish we hadn't. There are things that we haven't done or said or thought that we wish we would have done. But our past doesn't have to define us. And the present can be regret-free because of Jesus Christ. And he offers the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and who keeps us in, in touch with God so that we're repenting and confessing daily for those of us who have the Spirit so that we live regret-free, or we can. And our future is assured in heaven when we trust and surrender in Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Scripture tells us that Jesus is the one who came. He taught us who God, who God was, what God wanted for our lives. He died on the cross, not because of anything that he had done wrong, but because of your sin and my sin. He was buried in a tomb. He rose three days later and he rose back to life. Over 500 people saw him alive and Jesus is alive today. He's alive today. 
He is the remedy for any of those regrets. He forgives us. So what can we do about that? There are two kinds of people who are here this morning. There are those who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus. And there are those who haven't yet. If you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Realize he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He really is the one who who created all that God created because Jesus is one with the Father. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all one. Trust in Jesus. Surrender everything to him. Turn from your sin. And you know, all of us can do this, whether we already have trust in Jesus or whether we haven't yet. If you've already trusted in Jesus, keep trusting him. Yield to the Holy Spirit. We need to turn from our sin and ask him for forgiveness because we need freedom from that regret and it only comes through asking Jesus to help us to move beyond that and trusting that he will help us. He offers us that forgiveness. Then we need to release those regrets. Release those regrets to him and make it right if we can. Make it right if we can. It's interesting. In Romans chapter 12, there are all kinds of great little tidbits of of instruction that we get from Paul as to how to live. But he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Maybe we've been going through this message this morning and you've thought of somebody in your mind and you have a regret as maybe the way you treated them or something you did to them or or something you said to them. According to this verse here, he says, make it right, if at all possible. Live at peace with everyone. Live at peace. That's why that man sent $5 for a $2 40-year-old ticket. He wanted to be right with the police department and have a clear conscience. We need to live for Jesus each day through the power and strength of the Holy Spirit recognizing that the Word of God helps us to make wiser choices. And one of the things I've discovered in my life, the more I live for God, the more I follow God's Word, the fewer regrets I have in my life. We need to rely on Him because He has assured us that the future is way better than what we have here in this world. Way better. We have a secure future, not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it, but because he gives us his grace and his mercy. So as we close this morning, I'd like for you to just close your eyes and think about who is Jesus really to you? Who is Jesus really to you? Who is Jesus? And do you have regrets in your life because of who Jesus is, because you recognize Jesus is perfect and you're not? Is there some regret in your life that you haven't yet dealt with in, in, in giving it to, over to God and asking him to help you through that? And then realize this morning that Jesus is the remedy for all of our regrets, for every sin that we've ever committed, for all the things in the past. Let's have just a minute of silent prayer where you reflect on your life and, and getting yourself right with God as I do that, and then I'll close this in prayer.
Well, Father God, we realize the world is a passing away along with all the desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, we really do want to do your will. We really want to know Jesus and share in his resurrection and share in his suffering so that by some way you accomplish what you've promised to us to raise us back to life one day. Father, we know that we can't do that. That's only possible through you and through your son, Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can help us to overcome our daily sin. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Help us to live without regret by confessing those things to you that we've done wrong. Father, may we trust in you. May, may our trust be in Jesus who said he is the way and the truth and the life. Father, help us not to be fence-sitters. Help us not to be conformed to this world. And help us to certainly not be wicked, but to be righteous because you have given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ as we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior. Lord God, thank you so much for all you provide for us. Thank you for the great hope that we have that like John, even though we may physically die someday, we can rise back to life to be with you forever in heaven. Thank you, Lord God, so much for who you are, for all you accomplish for us. And Lord, we just praise your name. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.